The reading for today is from Matthew, John, and Luke. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. These are the words of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Josh Prather. I'm a pastor at Redemption Church, elder here at Redemption Arcadia. It's always a pleasure when I get the uh, opportunity to preach. My passage will pop up here is a big piece of scripture. It's Luke 29, 32 through uh, 30, 46, and I've titled it The Way of the Cross. Um, normally, what I like to do when I'm preaching is have a pretty structured outline that I walk through. This is going to be a little different, so I'll walk through the structure of my message today to just give you kind of a, um, give you an idea of where I'm headed this morning. I'm going to be reading through big pieces of scripture this morning, and the reason I'm going to do that, when I um, was designated to preach this passage, there's a theologian named Leslie Newbegin who says that um, this is the climax of universal history. He says that this and Easter Sunday is the hinge upon which universal history changes. So it's a pretty significant passage. It's a lot of scripture, but I'm going to be reading a lot of it because I think it's really important for us just to hear the word of God today. So it's going to be less preaching, less teaching, and honestly, a lot of reading. So please, as I'm reading, track with me as I'm doing it. I'm going to have a few things that you're going to hear. I'm going to say pause, and when I say pause, if you're looking at your phone, if you have your Bible in front of you, if you're reading the text behind me, I'm going to ask to get your full attention when I say pause. So you're reading along with me, pause, give me your full attention. I'm going to have a moment of teaching and then fill in some gaps. And then I'm going to say, let's continue, and then we can come back to the text, and that's kind of our cue to continue on. If I say the other Gospels, I'm going to say that quite a bit. It's because this account from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to the cross is in every single gospel. So all four gospels have this account, and honestly, each one is very unique. So um, having meditated and read through all the four gospels, what I'm going to try to do is in these chunks, these big pieces of scripture that I'm reading, I'm going to say, and the other gospels say, and I'm just going to try to fill it in to give us a larger piece of the story of what God's doing in this scripture. Um, also, as I was meditating on the text, I just really got a sense that God was kind of pushing me personally towards the relational focus. There's so much happening. There is no way I'm going to be able to get to everything that I could get to in this text. But the relational aspect of how everybody responds to Jesus in this moment really stood out to me. So I'm going to say, and this is the moment when, and normally when I say that, it's going to be trying to focus on one piece of a relationship of Jesus being denied, Jesus being abandoned, and something for us to connect with in our humanity and his humanity. Uh, we're going to slow down pretty significantly when I get to the torture and execution and really talk through that. Um, and then the final words of Jesus that you just heard, when I get there to the final words, you know that's, that's what I'm going to end with, is the final words of Jesus, and then I'll lead us in prayer, okay? Let me pray, and then we can start. God, um, I sense coming in here this morning in my own heart and in the heart of these people, God, that, uh, God, there's things that we're carrying in here, God, 
And I pray that you lay those aside. God, your, your word, some of us have been coming to church for, for a long time, God. And you tell us that your word has power. You tell us that your word does not return void. You tell us as we read your word that can actually transform us, that we can hear your voice through it. So in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, I pray that as I read your word, God, it would transform us. God, so please bless this time of reading, bless this time of preaching. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said. Okay, starting in verse 39 of of chapter uh, 22, Um, starting in verse 39. Then he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Pause here. The cup that Jesus is referring to is taking us back to the Old Testament. It's taking us back to the psalmist. It's taking us back to the prophets. Because through the Old Testament, you see that there is this foaming cup of wrath that God has, that is boiling up, that the prophets talk about, that the psalmists talk about, that God is going to pour out on the nations because of disobedience. And Jesus is holding this cup, metaphorically, in his hands at this moment, ready to drink the cup of wrath that God has in store for all of us, has in store for the nations. And Jesus is saying, God, I don't want to drink this, but I'm, but I'm willing to. And this is what's so incredible. He's willing to suffer and preparing to suffer, but pleading with God to remove the suffering. And I think this really helps us see the humanity of Jesus. Yes, fully God, fully man, but fully man in this moment. Sweating blood is a rare disorder where you actually sweat blood from the skin. Now, there's only a few handful of cases in the 20th century actually documenting this, but Leonardo da Vinci actually wrote of a soldier who came back from war sweating drops of blood. And what they know about this is that it's caused by extreme distress or fear as you're beginning to face torture or possibly death. Jesus knows where he's headed. He knows what's about to happen. And he's in agony in this moment, as any of us would be. Let's continue. Verse 45, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pause. And this is the moment where Jesus is let down and disappointed by his friends. The disciples sleeping in Jesus' most desperate and needy moment. The other gospels have Jesus going back and forth with his his disciples in this moment saying, why are you sleeping? Do you not know where I'm headed? Do you not know what I've said? Why are you sleeping in my most desperate and needy time? Let's continue, verse 47. While he was still speaking, there, a crowd, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, but Jesus said, no more of this. 
and he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is the hour and the power of darkness. Pause here. This is the moment where Jesus was betrayed and abandoned by his friends. And the other gospels have this moment where they come forward and they say, are you Jesus? And he says, I am he. And they all fall back. The whole crowd and the mob that's come to get him actually falls back. And what you see in this moment is a clash of powers that is taking place. You see Jesus um, pleading with his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Well, who tempts? Who tempts? Satan. Satan is the one who tempts us, right? You see an angel with Jesus strengthening him and speaking to him. And you see him right here saying, this is the hour of the power of darkness. I just want to do a quick survey. Raise your hand if you would believe, and I really would like you to participate. Raise your hand if you believe in demonic or satanic powers. Wow, take a look around. No, hold your hand up. Take a look around. Wow, okay. So here, I don't want you to raise your hands now. But who believes they actually pray as if they believe in satanic or demonic powers? When's the last time you've asked people to lay hands on you because you feel like you're in shackles and in bondage? If you're a Christian, I don't believe you can be demon-possessed, but the forces around you feel like they're so strong, pressing in, trying to tempt you away from what God would call you to do that you say, I need you. You call your community, lay hands on me that I wouldn't enter into temptation, that I would be free from these shackles. I feel like I'm in bondage. When's the last time you have laid hands on somebody on their chest, on their shoulder, on their head, and prayed that they would be released from the bondage, we all just, raise, almost everybody in this room, raise their hands and said they believe in Satan and demonic forces. Church, let's start praying like we believe in it. You hear me? Let's do it. Okay. Where am I? Let me find my place. Let's continue on. Verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him um, as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly. This man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter, remembering the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Pause. And this is the moment where Jesus is denied by his best friend. A little backstory if you're new to the church, if you haven't been here in the church for very long. Uh, Peter is Jesus' closest disciple, and there's a few moments that I think are really important. Uh, one moment is Jesus is with all his disciples, and he says, who do people say that I am? You know, and they give him a few different responses. And then he looks at them and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds and says, you are the Christ 
the chosen one of God's people, the one we've been waiting for. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. You are God and the Messiah in one. And Jesus blesses that response. And then just before our text right here, he's having a conversation with his disciples as well. And Peter says, if you need to go to prison, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you to prison and I'm going to go with you to death. And then right here, he denies him three times, which leads me to believe that talk by itself is cheap. Talk is cheap. Talk must be followed by actions. And I learned this the hard way early out of my marriage because I keep saying to my wife, I love you. And she's, mm, I'm struggling to believe you. I say, baby, I love you. You know, and she'd be like, eh, I'm struggling, struggling, struggling to believe you. Until finally, I love you. And she would say, well, you need to show me. I was like, ah. My wife's always been a better theologian than me, always from the very beginning. But what she knew then is that if I'm just saying, because I was having a hard time, I was like, I'm saying it. Like, what don't you believe? Like, the words, are coming, <laughs> the words are coming out. That should be enough. But there was something missing, you know? There was something missing in the actual showing and giving visible representation of that love early on. And she understood that. And Peter will eventually understand that. I won't go into the life of Peter, but Peter eventually will lay down his life for Jesus. But here at this particular time, we learn from him that it's not just talk, but it's talk and actions that we must live. And I think just one more, one more thing on this is that he looks at Peter. If you've noticed this trend with Jesus in this story, is that, or in the stories that we're, we've been going through, uh, Love Walked Among Us, you'll notice that Jesus always looks at people in their most vulnerable state, and he looks at the most vulnerable. He looks at the most vulnerable in their most vulnerable state. The eyes of Jesus and his eyes set on the most vulnerable are absolutely incredible. So nobody else is looking at Peter at this moment. They might be accusing him, but Jesus, in what he's doing, takes his attention away from the priests in this moment and looks at Peter in his most vulnerable position. Doesn't that give us some, some encouragement that Jesus sees us in our most vulnerable state, no matter where we're at? He turns his eyes towards us, I think so. Okay, where am I at? Let's, let's continue on verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept saying to him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Pause here. Um, this is the moment where Jesus is insulted and belittled. The other gospels kind of fill this in a little bit. Um, they say that they put a purple robe on Jesus. They tied together a crown of thorns and pressed it into Jesus's head. And they bowed down to him, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And there's a passage that came to mind as I'm thinking about Jesus being mocked, struck, having the uh, crown of thorns pressed into his head, mocked with a purple robe, mocked with a purple robe. Um, Colossians 1 came to mind. Let me read this to you. And this is speaking of Jesus. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things... Notice the trend, all. All things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace shed 
on the cross, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You imagine Jesus possessing all authority, all power, and in this moment, he lays it down, he tempers it, he holds it together and submits it to the will of the Father. It's incredible to watch this power. This is what you call meekness. Power under control is our Lord and Savior in this moment. And just one other word right here. The other Gospels have Judas actually trying to return the money to the priests. And he brings back the money, tries to return it to the priests. The priests don't have it. They're happy they have Jesus now. He throws down the money, runs out, he hangs himself. And with that money, they go to buy a field called the Field of Blood still to this day. Um, and that's to fulfill a prophecy. I'll get into prophecies just in a little bit. But I think it's an important reminder that when we turn against Jesus, it leads to death. And if we turn towards Jesus, it leads to life. And we see that with Judas. Let's continue. Verse 66. When day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, you will see the Son of Man, or from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And they said, Well, what further testimony do we need? You have heard it. You have heard it. Uh, we have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Pause here. Uh, the other gospels have Jesus saying, I've shared openly, I've shared everything with you. So why are you asking me questions that you knew? Because Jesus never tried to hide his identity, he never tried to hide who he was. He was in the synagogues, he was in the marketplace, he was always speaking openly about who he was, what he came to do. And he's saying, if I tell you again in this moment, you won't believe me because you've never believed me. And it's important for us I, to look at the life of Jesus, his public ministry, and to ask ourselves, do we have that sort of public profession of faith? I think one of the challenges of Christianity today, especially within the evangelical tradition, is oftentimes faith is privatized. It becomes a private religion where we're in the public square, and sometimes we forget to take Jesus with us. But Jesus is saying right now, you know what I'm going to say. You know that, you th that I think I'm God. You know that I have proclaimed that I am the Messiah, the chosen one of Israel. I have spoken op openly about this. And it's for this reason that you have me now. And it's for this reason that you want to kill me. Because you know what I have said. Let's continue on. The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Christ, the king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching them throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. I'm going to summarize the next text. So... Uh, Pilate finds that he could send Jesus to Herod. He sends him to Herod. Herod has heard that Jesus can do signs and wonders, and he wants him to do some magic tricks for him. Jesus doesn't do that. Um, he treats him with contempt and eventually sends him back to Pilate. Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus, and at this particular time, he wants to release him. And this is where we're going to pause, because also the other Gospels would fill in for us that this is the moment that Jesus is tortured. And the other Gospels say that this is the moment that Jesus is flogged, and whipped, and before you, don't put it up, but before I show this picture, I want to just give a caveat behind this. This picture is going to be graphic, um, but we're reading a very graphic story. 
Um, so I'm not trying to do shock and awe here, but I do think there's something to learn from the picture you're about to see and from the story of the black church in the United States. So we're going to talk a little bit about that just because I think there's so much to learn from the historic black church, where they've come from, um, what they've persevered through. And this picture is a piece of that, and I think you'll immediately know why. So you can go ahead and, and put that picture up. <clears throat> this is a picture of Gordon or Whipped Peter. And he was an enslaved African-American who escaped from a Louisiana plantation in 1863, gaining freedom when he reached the Union camp near Baton Rouge. He became known as the subject of photographs documenting the extensive scarring on his back from whipping received in slavery. Abolitionists distributed this, these photographs of Gordon throughout the United States and internationally to show the abuses of slavery. And I think we have, as I said before, great things to learn from the African-American experience. You can immediately see the identification, right? We're reading a story about flogging, whipping, and then you look at this picture and you immediately, you start to see a connection. A theologian uh, that I appreciate, uh, Walter Strickland, says, you can't understand the African-American experience in America without understanding that Jesus sits at the center of it. Because we're not the only ones that saw the identification, People like Whit Peter would read this story and it would come to life in their personal experience and they would see Jesus. And we'll talk more about that in just a little bit as we continue forward. Let's continue. Verse 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He, re he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pause. This is the moment Jesus is passed off, overlooked, and becomes lower than a murdering anarchist. The other Gospels have the Jews at this moment also saying, we have no other king but Caesar. And you see how far God's people have actually come because they're declaring that Caesar is Lord, Caesar is king, and not the one true God of the world, which is in flesh, standing right before them. Also, I think it's important to know what the other gospels say about Pilate, because Pilate knows that it's out of envy that the Jews are handing over Jesus to him. So he knows it's out of envy. He also knows that his wife had a dream that afternoon about Jesus, and his wife tells him that this is a righteous man, and you should have nothing to do with him. This is the story. This is what Pilate has in his mind, knows it's out of envy, knows his wife has this dream, but the mob wins over Pilate, which is, I think, uh, an important lesson for us, and a passage came to mind as I thought of this. I thought about Pilate and just giving, him, giving Jesus over to what the mob wanted. Wide is the way that leads to death, and those that enter by it are many. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and those who enter by it are very few. The majority of the time, the mob in our society, the mob in our culture is not leading towards life. And if we give ourselves over to it, we're giving ourselves over to what Pilate gave himself over to it. And what 
And what Pilate tries to do in this moment, he tries to wash his hands of it, what I think is fascinating. He literally goes over and he tries to wash his hands, so he kind of cleanses himself of the guilt that he should feel, but we know that's not how this works. Um, I think of a positive example of what should have happened in this moment. What should it have looked like for someone with power staring at injustice to act appropriately? And I think of Boaz and Ruth. If you know the story of Ruth, uh, let me just fill in a few gaps. Ruth is a righteous woman and finds herself in a very difficult position. She's poor and without support, and she's taking food from the from the edge of the field. She's gleaning from the edges of the fields, which was a command for God's faithful people to let the poor glean from the edges of the fields. And this is where she runs into Boaz. Now, Boaz had a choice after meeting Ruth. Boaz could have washed his hands and said, okay, I see this woman's plight, but it's not my responsibility. But it says that Boaz is a righteous man. Instead of washing his hands, Boaz actually moves towards Ruth with compassion. And I won't share the rest of that story, but he sees injustice, he sees what's wrong, and he moves towards it. I think in our modern day, and this is to our credit of Redemption Arcadia, I think of Oye Waddell, who's a black man raised in South Central LA, lives here in Phoenix, and he saw the plight of some of the black and Latino community, and he said, what can I do to be of service to this community? What has God given me? What are my resources? What's my power? What's my gifts? What's my skills? So now what Oye tries to do is mobilize people to use their wealth, their intellect, their resources to be a blessing. And that's why I'm grateful for Redemption Arcadia, because I know so many of you in this room and in other, congr- or in other services have seen that and said, God, all that I have is not just given for me. And I can't just look at injustice, and I just can't look at the plight of those in need in our community and wash my hands, as Pilate did, and pretend that it's not my responsibility. Christians don't have that option. When we see injustice, when we see the poor, we can't just wash our hands of it, but we move towards it. So I know a lot of you have been involved in that and with Immigrant Hope. I see so many specks of God's goodness, of not washing our hands of things like this. But that's not what Pilate did. So Jesus is handed over, verse 26. And as they led him away, continue with me, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they... For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? First, just let me say, let it never be said that the Bible doesn't uplift women. Because here we have a story, and all the men are either torturing Jesus, denying Jesus, or walking away from Jesus. Who's actually hanging in with Jesus? It's the women. And it's not by coincidence that Luke is trying to bring this to light, saying that the women are following Jesus and they're hanging in there. But all the men that are supposed to be closest to him have deserted him, and they walked away. So that's number one, and he's quoting from Zechariah. So this passage, it seems a bit obscure. What's he trying to say? He's quoting from Zechariah, and I'm just going to try to summarize this. Simply put, Jesus is saying things aren't moving in a positive direction for Israel, and if humanity is doing this while Jesus is alive, the wood is green, um, things are only going to get worse when he's dead, the wood is dry. 
So things are not moving in a positive direction. And we see prophecy sprinkled throughout this entire story. From this chunk of scripture that I'm reading, there are so many bits of prophecy. And what Jesus is trying to do, what Luke is trying to do, and really Matthew, because Matthew speaking to a Jewish audience primarily, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, Jesus is the one that we've longed for. He's God's chosen representative for his people. The ones the prophets talked about, the psalmist talked about, going all the way back to Abraham, going to Noah, going going to every single person in the Old Testament that has longed for a representative to come and actually be a fulfillment of what we've longed to have for so many years. We've longed for someone to be obedient. We've longed for Israel to be whole. We've longed for someone to overthrow this kingdom that we see that we're oppressed by. And what the writer's trying to do is say, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one that we have longed for. He's the one that we've hoped for 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 so many years. Let's continue. Verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said, This is the king of the Jews. Pause there. This is the moment where Jesus is mocked, humiliated, hung naked on a cross, and completely dehumanized. It's hard for us to imagine this. We have a cross in our lobby over the state of Arizona because we long for all people to bow at the cross and bow at the feet of Jesus. Um, But oftentimes, I think it becomes sterile for us. Now, it is a moment of rejoicing, and I'll get to that in a moment, why we can rejoice in the cross. But I think in this moment, just based upon this passage, it's important for us to remember that the cross is one of the worst torture devices that Romans would use to, to, <laughs> to destroy people, destroy people. And Jesus in this moment is being completely destroyed. And even when we think about Jesus on the cross, I know a lot of you have seen the images, right, of Jesus on the cross, but normally it's like, kind of like a ballerina pose. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus is on the cross and maybe like one drop of blood, he's still like kind of put together. But just, if you would, I know it's hard to think about, but just imagine Jesus in this moment on the cross. He's had the flesh ripped off of his back. We think of that picture of whipped Peter, except it's not scarred over, it's open flesh. We think of the nails in his hands and his feet. We think of the thorns pressed on his his head, blood in his face. He's so weak. He's so vulnerable that he can't even carry the cross. His eyes are pulp. His eyes are just so puffed up and swollen. And I've never seen a depiction of Jesus hung naked, ever. It's almost too much for us to stand. But historians would say that he was. Completely dehumanized in this moment. And I want us to realize, as I just just described that for you, this is real love. Love equals love crucifixion. (laughs) Love equals cross. There is no other way to love. 
There is no such thing as sacrificial love. There's just love. A lot of times we like to say, you know, the best way to love is sacrificially. I'm like, there's no other way. There's no other way to do it. Why? Because Jesus is love. Jesus is the fullness of God. He's the fullness of love. He's showing us the way, not a way to choose from, but the way to love is through the cross. Love moves towards pain, and we have no other options. There's no other options. If you want to love your neighbor, if you want to love your wife, if you want to love your kids, it's through the way of the cross. And we are, or we were, or we are, all either um, the disciples, the Pharisees, or Barabbas in this instance. So we're deserving to be crucified, as Barabbas was. We are spitting on Jesus as he's crucified, or we're deserting Jesus as he's crucified. And you know, Jesus' response is the same to every single one of us. Forgiven. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Can we comprehend this type of love? It inspires us, does it not? Because we want so badly, I believe that in this room, we want so badly to love like this, but it's so hard. That's why we gaze upon the cross. When we walk past that cross, we gaze upon it to be inspired to love in this way. We can't comprehend such love. Um, participation is another thing I think about when I think of the cross. At the cross, Jesus takes our individual wrongs, our sins upon himself, so things that God has called us to do or things we should have done and never did, things that we weren't supposed to do and we actually did. Jesus takes all of that upon himself. He becomes our substitution and our sins are atoned for and we are justified. So all of the wrongs that we have done, Jesus heaps on his back. You imagine taking everything in your mind and your body, you put it on the back of Jesus. Jesus gets up onto the cross. It's crucified. He becomes a substitute. And based upon faith in what he has done, we now become justified. We now stand in a right standing with God. We have fellowship with God. We have union with God through Christ. Isn't that incredible? I know we're not a charismatic church, but can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. Talk to me. Thank you. But if that's all it becomes, and it becomes a historical moment um, that we believe in with our minds but not our lives, the cross is not just an object that we think about, but it's an object that God calls us to pick up. It's not only something we ponder on, but the cross is something we must, if we're followers, we must participate in. And this is what I think we have to learn from based upon the picture I showed you before and the black church experience. I think this is so much to learn from. James Cone um, wrote a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Anybody heard of James Cone? Anybody heard of James Cone? Um, he's probably the most prolific uh, African-American theologian, um, definitely in the 20th century, but maybe, gosh, almost of all time because he actually wrote from the perspective, what he says, a bottom-up from the African-American experience. Now, I personally, and we as Redemption Church, if you read James Cone, I would love to process it with you because there's some things that I'm deeply indebted to his writing for. It's incredible, but some things we'd, we'd veer away from. But here, why I'm using him as an example um, is I think it's incredible. And what Cohen has to say, I think, is so good because during the 19th century, thousands of black men were lynched and hung on a tree. Um, it is this identification with Jesus being hung from a tree that gave life to the African-American church and to the African-American experience. You have to realize that the gospel spread like wildfire 
in the African-American community during slavery and during this time because there was such an identification with Jesus. It was no longer a concept that you're trying to believe that's kind of like in the ethereal world. It was literally a concrete reality that you lived in, that you have to live in, right? And that's what makes it so powerful. James Cone says this, the gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but it's a, it's a story, a physical reality. This happened, actually happened in history, a story about God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on the cross. What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair. And that comes from James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And if you're interested to learn more from the uh, uh, African-American experience and all that we have to learn from the historic black church in America, which I think there's so much to learn, James Cone is just one, but I would recommend Martin Luther King Jr. I'd recommend Strength to Love, an incredible book by Reverend Dr. King. Incredible. And if you've never read Letter from a Birmingham Jail, you have to read. Have to. It is a must on your reading list, Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Please, please read it, and you can get it free online. Um, and honestly, I think this is why, I, I think about this, and I think about the way of the cross, and I think this is why no one should want to be a Christian. And what, here, I'm going to have to fill that. Let me tighten that up a little bit. All right, <clears throat> All right as I said, right, let me tighten it up. Um, and this is, why, <laughs> this is why I believe in God's sovereignty and salvation. Because when you hear this, this isn't the sort of message that you hear and you say, man, let me come forward. Let me take the bread. Let me dip it in the wine or the juice. And let me swear allegiance and let me pick up my cross. The only thing that compels us to do that is Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Because you read the way of the cross and you recognize Jesus was in agony before he's about to go to the cross. The life as a believer, yes, there is new life because Easter is coming. Easter is coming. So we're not just focusing just on the cross. Easter is coming, but I recognize that unless God calls you and says, you're mine, unless God reveals his love shed for you, his blood shed and his love that he shows you on the cross, God has to be the one to do it. God has to be, because you read this story and you think, whoa, the life of discipleship is not an easy way. Narrow, narrow is the way that leads to life. All right, did I clean that up? We doing okay? All right. Okay, good. Let's continue. Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If you've never given your heart, your mind, and your body to Jesus, now is the time. And as I said before, I don't know if my words are going to inspire you to do it, but I pray that the life of Jesus and what you just heard will inspire you to do it. Now, this isn't an altar call to come forward right now if you come from the old Southern Baptist tradition like I do. It's not what I'm about to do. But I would say, if God has spoken to you and through hearing the crucifixion narrative, you think to yourself, 
Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. I'm going to ask you to come forward and take communion, maybe for the first time, or maybe you need to recognize one more time that Jesus died for you, and all your sins, all your wrongs were put on the back of Jesus. So if you've never done it before, just like the thief on the cross, give your body to Jesus. Give your whole self to Jesus. Let's continue. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the, sun, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Pause there. The other gospels actually uh, state that the rock split and Jesus' side was pierced, and that his side being pierced fulfills another prophecy. Creation calms at the voice of Jesus. We see this in the gospels. Creation heals. Something's broken in creation, Jesus heals it, right? Creation is out of whack. They're on the sea and everything's going nuts. And it calms at the voice of Jesus. So as Jesus is being cracked open, his back is cracked open, he's literally being cracked open, the rocks cannot help but crack open themselves because the one that created them and spoke them into existence is now being cracked so they themselves crack open. And the curtain being torn in two is because now we can actually come into God's presence. There's no distance because of Jesus. Because of the cross, the curtain is torn open, which represents us being able to walk into the holiest of holies, be in God's presence, and experience the fullness of God in Jesus. An amazing moment that we're seeing here. I'm going to conclude now, and I want to conclude with the final words of Jesus. I'm going to read the final words of Jesus, and I'm just going to pray. So read them with me, and I don't know if you've ever done this, or if you've been trained to do this, but as I read them, I would love for you to hear God's voice. Now, we're reading God's word, so of course we're listening for God's voice, but what is God saying to you, in particular as you read this? I'm going to read them very slowly. I'm going to read the words of Jesus very slowly, and I want you to hear what God might be saying to you as I read them, okay? With me? All right. Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lema Shabakani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the death of Jesus. Because of the death of Jesus, God, we have forgiveness of sins. And we're grateful for that. We're grateful that all of what the world has done, all of, what, all of the evil that exists in the world now, all of what we have done, all of the things that we should have done that we didn't do, Jesus, you took upon yourself, and by your death, we can be forgiven. God, I pray you give us strength to pick up the cross. God, inspire us. God, give us fresh vision of your love for us, fresh vision of the cross. Many of us have heard of the cross so many times that... It becomes hard to hear it fresh once again, but I pray you would do that. 
I pray you would do that, God. So please, now as we take communion, help us see you and obey you. In the name of Jesus, amen.